I am Kate Iverson. I'm a clinical research psychologist at the Women's Health Sciences Division of the National Center for PTSD, and that's located at the VA Boston Healthcare System in the United States. And I'm also an associate professor of psychiatry at Boston University. I've been interested in intimate partner violence for a long time. And intimate partner violence, um, the way I think about it and define it um, in the United States, uh, we have adopted the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's definition of intimate partner violence, which is intentionally very broad. So it refers to any type of physical violence at any level, sexual aggression or coercion or um, activities when someone can't consent, um, like when under the influence or unconscious, as well as stalking or, you know, following behaviors that causes fear. We often will see this, you know, interfering with work, et cetera. And then a whole range of psychological um, activities that, you know, can range from very controlling behaviors, such as kind of limiting where somebody goes and who they're seeing, so they're more isolated, um, as well as things just like kind of chronic put-downs and invalidation and crazy-making you know, blaming the partner for the violence. So these are just all different types and kind of manifestations of intimate partner violence. And in my clinical work, starting in graduate school back in 2002, when I started seeing clients, both within the couples context, I was doing couples therapy, and I was running a group treatment for women who had experienced past or current intimate partner violence. And so it just really opened my eyes to how prevalent it really is. Um, yet it's so stigmatizing, but it's happening in so many of our relationships. But as you say, it, it is quite hidden. And so I think it's really important that we're talking about it. It's really nice when people who have experienced or used intimate partner violence are willing to talk about their experiences and what they've gone through and what has helped them. Um, so we really need to kind of destigmatize it to be able to talk about it. And then, you know, my whole line of work focuses on what can we do in the healthcare setting to help people who experience intimate partner violence. And, you know, my work has really focused on women and they tend to experience more severe forms of intimate partner violence. They tend to have more sexual violence experiences and um, are more likely to be injured psychologically and physically by violence. And I just want to put it out there that individuals of all gender identities experience intimate partner violence. It's cross-cutting. It happens in same-sex relationships, etc. cetera. So, um, so that's really important because I think the work that we do with women and in my work, I'm always keeping an eye on how can we broaden this to include, you know, a focus on, on other gender identities? It's not just an issue um, for women. It's significantly prevalent among women and damaging, um, but keeping an eye open for helping everybody. Making it easier for women to seek help. 
particularly at the moment with what's happened in the last you know year or two, where maybe it's become even more hidden as people have been um, you know kept in their homes. What do you think we can do broadly as, as societies, you know, governments, to to actually start to bring the issue out more? A couple of thoughts. I mean, I think you bring up a really important point about COVID and it's been such an awful situation. I would say one of the good effects to come out of COVID has been to, there really has been more of a shiny light put on the issue of family violence, child abuse, and also, of course, intimate partner violence. Um, So I think there's been more media attention um, with the hashtag Me Too movement. Of course, there's been just a lot more attention to people's experiences with abuse, sexual abuse, and violence, which has helped really, again, put light on the issue, help people see that this is not, intimate partner violence is not something that just impacts a certain type of person or a certain demographic of person or certain um, socioeconomic um, levels. It really crosses, you know, many different um, variables. And so anytime we can shine light on the issue is helpful. And when people hear others talking about intimate partner violence, especially their experiences with it when they have lived experience or even just receiving education from the media or from healthcare providers, from government officials, raising awareness about how prevalent it really is. That in itself, I've been told um, by women in my research, helps to kind of um, feel less alone and start really thinking about, you know, the unhealthy aspects of their relationships. Um, It's empowering in that way to hear people talk about it. So that's really, really critical. Um, And it's also really complicated because, you know, in in efforts to destigmatize intimate partner violence, we want those who are using you know, perpetrating is the, you know, kind of the traditional term that's been used within the the U.S. Veterans Health Administration. We have sort of moved away from that terminology and um, focus on person first language, such as a veteran who uses violence or a veteran who experiences violence. And, you know, this is really to help destigmatize the issue um, to let people know this is something we can talk about and that help is available and that we want to be helpful to kind of help reduce um, barriers related to shame and embarrassment. Um, so I think our language is really important. The language we put out there in society matters. What does the evidence tell us about the best way to help people who use violence or are victims of violence? Well, I can tell you a little bit about um, the evidence for use of violence. Um, This is less um, my specialization, but I'm very fortunate um, to work with colleagues in the U.S. Veterans Health Administration who have done a lot of work in this area because we've been finding intimate partner violence use and experience. It's, It's very common 
among the veteran population. We've been really trying to break down to understand it and break down barriers to care and make sure that we have effective treatments. So um, Casey Taft, Susanna Creech, and Chris Murphy have done a lot of work to develop a trauma-informed intervention that has been found effective um, among veterans in reducing violence, you know, in our gold standard randomized controlled trials. So that's something um, that... I'm aware of within in the U.S. Veterans Health Administration that a lot of effort has been put into rolling out across the United States. And so many VA medical centers are now able to offer strength at home. And when you have an effective treatment that's readily available, clinicians feel much more comfortable asking about people's you know, experiences with violence and use of violence because there's somewhere they feel comfortable sending them. And a nice thing about working in an integrated healthcare system like VA is that um, often you're not having to send them out into the community, which, you know, brings up more barriers sometimes. Um, I know for uh, women who experience intimate partner violence, if they're already seen within the Veterans Health Administration, to be able to refer them within the system or even do a warm handoff the same day that they disclose um, experiencing intimate partner violence or just that they want to learn more about it. You know, that we have um, people on site, IPV assistance program coordinators that we can refer to and we have emerging evidence-based interventions um, that VA is investing in rolling out across the country and I can talk in a minute more about one of those interventions. But um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that when um, you're in a healthcare system and you have easy ways to refer people to services you believe work and you've seen the data that they work, um, I think that's where we can really make a difference in educating providers, identifying within primary care even, um, and then at times, we can do warm handoffs to the social worker that works within primary care or to the clinical psychologist who specializes in primary care behavioral health and is available to do immediate intervention or provide, you know, education about intimate partner violence, what it is, what we have available, should they ever want help or to ever share resources with a loved one or friend in their lives. So I think that's, that's really critical. We need to make these interventions easy for people to access. And we want people, clinicians, to feel comfortable referring to them, that you know, they know their veteran or client is going to have a good trauma-informed experience. Music to my ears to hear that you've done evidence-based randomized research, and then you've found something that works and then you've implemented that in practice and now it's helping people that normally takes you know 30 years for that whole process to happen the research pipeline is kind of too lengthy sometimes i mean it's it's necessary to be rigorous and you know often when issues are emerging emerging and really at the forefront of society's mind that's when we need to act and take advantage of of the public discourse and awareness. And so um, 
I think you're right on about how slow it can be sometimes. I talked about Casey Taft and his colleagues' work doing this around strength at home and interventions for use of violence. But I've also been fortunate fortunate enough to be able to do intervention development work within the Veterans Health Administration funded by our Office of Research and Development to develop a brief counseling intervention for women who experience intimate partner violence. Um, The intervention is called RISE, which stands for Recovering from Intimate Partner Violence Through Strengths and Empowerment. And it's really based on an empowerment model with the idea that individuals who've experienced IPV have been massively invalidated by the intimate partner violence experiences. And sometimes they, it's not uncommon that they may have other violence exposures in their lifetime. We know among women veterans, for example, that um, uh, women who've experienced childhood sexual abuse and military and or military sexual trauma are about 2.5 times more likely to experience intimate partner violence within the past year. So those are unfortunately prevalent issues for women in our society, but particularly for women who served in the military. Um, So it's really important that we have interventions. So an empowerment-focused intervention like RISE really tries to meet the person where they're at right now in terms of what would be most helpful to them. RISE is modular in that um, our research has shown that, you know, women who experience intimate partner violence, their situations, circumstances, the resources that are available to them, it really differs um, for each woman that you see. And so it doesn't make sense to try to apply a one-size-fits-all intervention. That's really difficult. So the modules and RISE, um, every session, um, we invite the client to pick a module to focus on. And we have seven modules currently. Um, We have a resources, like really linking to resources module, because that's, you know, of course, critical. Same with safety planning. And so um, this is relevant to a lot of women, but not necessarily all women who are... um, seeking help for IPV um, through counseling. We have um, a coping and self-care module, which women, I can tell you, really love. They've often not put themselves first. They're doing so much to take care of any children or maintain um, some kind of stability and safety that their own kind of needs have, have unfortunately gone down the list of priorities. Um, And enhancing social support is a big one, Um, whether they've been isolated or by their partner or embarrassed, so pulled away from others or, um, you know, many times people have heard you need to just leave or oversimplified kind of suggestions about what they should be doing. They find that over time they reach out to people less. And so... um, You know, not having good social support we know is really damaging for people's mental health. And so that's a really important module. And we also have a module on making difficult decisions. And so sometimes this may refer to actually staying or leaving in the relationship and what they want to do there. But it can also focus on other aspects of women's lives, sometimes as a result of the abuse people have experienced over time, they've come to kind of distrust 
their ability to make good decisions. And so we really try to reinforce skills. They can't change every part. They can't change the partner's behavior, but there are areas where they do um, have more control and can safely make changes. Um, the other two modules are understanding the health effects of IPV and warning signs, and that's a popular one as well, and sexual violence is the final module, and that's within intimate relationships. You know, intimate partner coercion is very common, and as I mentioned earlier, experiences of previous sexual violence are common as well, so we wanted a way to be able to provide education and resources around that issue in the context of our IPV treatment. Um, so those are the seven modules, and just like women get to pick the topic for each session, they also um, have voice and choice over how many sessions they want to receive. There's not a set number that we're aiming for. Typically now women can have up to about eight sessions, and it's intended to be a brief intervention and not go on forever. Um, so, at, you know, many times we will find that we make a referral to another evidence-based intervention within the VA um, to address depression or post-traumatic stress disorder after we've done some foundational work on intimate partner violence. So, um, you know, some women benefit from four or five sessions. It's basically up to them and what they feel they, they most need, want, and can do at this time. RISE um, was something we, in recognition that the research pipeline um, you know, takes a long time and then even at the end of your effectiveness testing, it's really hard to get interventions implemented into routine care. And so we took a user-centered design approach throughout. So right from the get-go in developing RISE, we were getting women with lived experience, their input in every part of the process, as well as um, our VA clinicians' input. We wanted to understand from the get-go what would make it easier to deliver this type of intervention. Is this even a feasible, helpful intervention, which we got great feedback on, which we've been able to incorporate. So um, that's been an important step because we did an open trial of RISE, and then we did a randomized control RISE, randomized control trial of RISE, where we compared it to um, an enhanced care as usual within the VA condition. And so the comparison condition was pretty robust. Um, women received a session in which, um, for the comparison, they got safety planning, education, lots of supportive comments and problem solving, and then strong linkages with other VA services such as social work, um, housing support, legal support, um, as well as community help. And um, in this RCT, we found that, as we had hoped, um, women who received RISE um, received much greater benefits in terms of their sense of empowerment in their lives and their self-efficacy. We saw really large effect sizes um, and differences between the two conditions. And we also found that RISE was helpful in reducing psychological distress, such as depression and um, was associated with reductions in intimate partner violence. And so this is, you know, it's always really helpful to have that kind of evidence um, when trying to implement in a healthcare system. And of course, that evidence is critical. 
At the same time, throughout this process, I'm very fortunate to work with um, leadership within the Veterans Health Administration. We have an intimate partner violence assistance program um, that has been very excited about this intervention and invested in, in helping us roll out an effective intervention because we have clinicians in, in all of our VAs who are doing a lot of hard work to raise awareness of intimate partner violence and screen and identify individuals for experiencing intimate partner violence. And now we have an effective intervention um, that is manualized uh, to that providers can refer to. And providers like that too, because oftentimes still in, in 2020 and 2021, our research is showing that clinicians don't you know, often won't ask about IPV because they don't feel comfortable about next steps, about next questions to ask, and and especially if they don't have somewhere to refer or an intervention that they themselves can deliver that they feel comfortable with. So we're excited about RISE because it provides a package that's evidence-based and um, a framework for, you know, delivering the key aspects of care for women who experience intimate partner violence. So how applicable do you think that work is to other health systems, to other countries? How, how easy do you think it is for them to take that model and use it elsewhere? Uh, well, I guess time will tell. Um, I'm very hopeful that it's been, you know, delivered in a way that is adaptable for different contexts. We kept that in mind from the start. I know some providers who have been using it in their private clinical work here in the United States. So, you know, so far to my knowledge, it's only been used here, but with, you know, good success in the context of private practice, which of course is a very different context than um, an integrated healthcare system context. So I'm hopeful, especially with, um, you know, this RISE intervention was developed specifically for women veterans. We are now rolling it out for veterans of any gender identity within the VA. So we've only um, used it at several VAs, at least seven at this point, and have um, a lot of plans for this coming year. But we've been collecting program evaluation data that's been showing us that it's um, very acceptable and helpful um, to men who experience intimate partner violence and um, across, you know, a, a diversity of different types of clients. Um, so that gives me a lot of hope that it will be transferable um, to different patient populations, but particularly to those who are treating veterans and um, looking forward to assisting with those efforts. You know, you're talking at this conference, so the 21st Australasian Conference on Traumatic Stress, which is happening on the 14th to the 18th of September. And your talk is on the Wednesday of that week. Um, give us a kind of elevator pitch for that talk. If people who are coming to the conference are listening to this podcast, why should they come along and hear you speak? What are they going to get out of it? I'm going to share my experiences from working in the USA Veterans Health Administration and what I've been able to do research in within this context. Um, and it's sort of a line of research that has focused on first 
understanding the scope of the problem of intimate partner violence, specifically among our women veteran population, we first really need to understand how often should we expect to be seeing this? How often are women experiencing it currently or recently? And how much do the history of this do they have? And then, of course, what kinds of you know, impacts is it having on their current health and functioning? So I'm going to be sharing some of my research that has um, shed light on rates of intimate partner violence and the health consequences of intimate partner violence, specifically among the women veteran population. And that's critical to really help uh, clinicians understand why intimate partner violence is such a valid healthcare issue, why this is something that we should um, be routinely asking about in our clinical practices. Um, that research from focus groups with women veterans um, have told us that women want to be asked about intimate partner violence. They think they're medical and mental health professionals that they can be helpful. They may not always choose to disclose, even if they have violence going on. You know, it might take a couple of times to disclose, but actually asking in a sensitive way, making eye contact, being non-judgmental, empathic, it can um, kind of plant a seed for people. And they may think back on that interaction and choose to seek help privately or from a clinician down the road. And so um, I'm going to be talking about screening and the evidence base around it, what we've learned from veterans and how um, that research has been used to roll out screening programs within the Veterans Health Administration. That's um, still very much a work in progress but we're learning a lot as we go and we're able to do research and evaluation of that process. And so um, I'll be sharing what we're learning about best clinical practices, um, as well as helpful implementation strategies. Like how do we, how do we implement these clinical practices? That's always the toughest part. So education and training is important, but it's certainly not enough. Um, so we'll be talking about that and, and, and as well as some promising interventions, um, such as RISE and why it was developed and its utility and its use in the, in the U.S. Veterans Health Administration. And, you know, I certainly hope that some of the lessons I've learned through my work and, and the work I'm doing with colleagues and the really great partners within the VA will be useful to folks working in other countries that are you know, already doing work in this area and um, looking to deepen their work in this area, or maybe intimate partner violence isn't something that's really been on the radar or something they've yet been comfortable addressing. And I'm hoping this will give um, some kind of basic information and tools and strategies for um, asking about intimate partner violence, talking comfortably about it, offering interventions and what that can look like, some of the benefits of doing that work. Mm -hmm.